Welcome to uh, West Bank Robbery. This is Mr. AP and Free Palestine. Yo, 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 what's uh, we're up, here guys? with a very special guest. We're going to be talking about the uh, assassination of Olaf Palma, the uh, social democratic uh, prime minister of Sweden. A hero of the PLO. <laughs> we're going to talk, hopefully, I think a little bit about kind of Sweden's history too, because I'm not exactly a big history buff uh, like most Americans. Um, I would be hard pressed to point out Sweden on a map. Okay. They have a king. Yeah, make sure that uh, I'm not pointing at Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a hard test for me. It's the top one. <laughs> and um, uh, do you mind today... introducing yourself, Gunnar? No, no, no. I'm introducing Gunnar. Oh, you're going to introduce? Okay, uh, go ahead. Gunnar prefers Gunnar because Americans, when they say Gunnar, sound uncanny valley, like a, an AI or somebody coming to hurt him. Sounds like that. So, yeah, so uh, this is Gunnar Hansen our expert today on the Olaf Palme assassination. Um, yes, ice in his belly, as they say over there. Um, and uh, yeah, he's a, he's a regular name on the Radio Warner uh, group discussions. Also did a uh, presentation on the assassination for Olaf Palme there that I uh, missed half of, so that's why we brought him on here today. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. There's been some recent news in Sweden uh, regarding it, which has uh, invalidated a lot of the Wikipedia page for uh, Swedish foreign relations, which is, um, it starts with Sweden's foreign relations are uh, based on not entering into alliances and maintaining neutrality. Yeah. What's, uh, what's up with the recent NATO turn? Has that affected your life at all? Have you been called up? Uh, no, uh, the, uh, like Sweden has uh, conscription that's, well, I think, no, we don't have that uh, anymore, but like we used to have mandatory conscription for everyone up until quite recent, but since uh, uh, the uh, late 19s, early 2000s, it became more and more of a like, if you really want to, like you can do it. Uh, but you still have to like go to the draft office and uh, do a physical. So uh, I did that, but then I think they even scrapped that. But now they're talking about bringing it back. Like the, the idea Fun. was, yeah. yeah. The, the idea was that we were to like have a big uh, defensive presence, so that uh, well, the theory wasn't that we should be able to like uh, defeat the Soviet Union, but that it should cost so much to invade us that it it would just uh, it wouldn't taste good. But uh, yeah, I think uh, they could do it. I have faith in them. But, but yeah. Uh, yeah, like the the idea was that uh, we were neutral, but it's. West-leaning neutral, you can say, during the Cold War, and uh, <laughs> after a while, we kind of became the like the fifth beetle of uh, NATO, so to speak. Um, so, like, uh, but the idea of neutrality has been very—it's been a very much a thing that was in the Swedish uh, consciousness that we were neutral during the First war, uh, World War, the Second World War, and. In theory, we will be during the Third World War, or like we're supposed to be uh, during uh, like the Cold War, and in a way, we were. So, yeah. how long has uh, like Swedish neutrality been a uh, like national uh, idea? I know very basic, very basic Swedish history, but at one point, uh, Sweden was was a pretty powerful imperial power in, in Europe, right? Yeah, the Swedish uh, strength. Yeah, that that was between like the seventeenth and uh, early eighteenth uh, century. Like it, it basically starts with uh, the Thirty Year War, uh, where uh, 
Sweden participated and uh, was like one of the leading powers on the Protestant side. Uh, and we came out of that with, uh, uh, we made out of that like uh, bandits. Uh, you did great. I heard that you invented ducking, just crouching, getting a little bit low to the ground to dodge arquebusier pellets. Well, I, I, I don't know about that, but uh, one thing that you can say is that uh, Sweden at that time had what was called uh, the Great Copper Mountain. So, oh. uh, yeah, from, I think, something like two-thirds of all copper mined in Europe was uh, mined in Sweden. Um, mm. So uh, we were kind of suited to have a uh, army with lots of uh, cannons. Uh, because, like, if, if you uh, build one cannon and we build one cannon, uh, you kind of have to buy the copper from us. But, oh, um, interesting. Yeah. But... Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I have to admit that now I'm kind of talking out of my ass because I don't have the timelines on what was the age of the copper cannon and the. No iron problem. We're here for the 20th and... century. Nobody gives a yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. That age but, is dead. Uh, well, I'm just interested in like if there is at all like uh, any like revanchism or like uh, any uh, any part of kind of Swedish politics that is. Uh, still kind of imperial-minded. Uh, oh, buddy, you betcha. Uh, well, I, I would say the short answer is no, because like those gains that we had were very much outside of the like current national state. Uh, like uh, we got parts of like North Germany uh, and like part of the Baltics, uh, the Baltic coastline, like uh, actually where St. Petersburg is uh, today, used to be as part of Sweden. Uh, Estonia, uh, Latvia, like th that area, and of course Finland, wh which had been Swedish for something like 700 years. You can see that it started with the 30-year uh, war. Uh, after that, uh, Sweden had a number of war with, wars with Denmark when we got our southern coastline. Up until then, uh, Denmark had been like the big power in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the southern parts of what is Sweden today uh, were part of Denmark, but uh, they lost those. Uh, and shortly after that, Sweden kind of peaked. Uh, and then uh, at the start of the 18th century, uh, we had like the Great Nordic War, uh, which is uh, when f Sweden was kind of finally defeated, because up until then it had grown. And then we had like a big showdown with uh, Denmark, Poland, and Russia uh, invading Sweden at the same time. And uh, Sweden actually like uh, won like the first engagement first. Like they knocked Russia temporarily out of the war. Then they is went that where to... the famous like horses on ice event happened? No, no, no. Uh, ho horse, uh, horses on ice uh, was when we it, it, it took uh, like the parts of Denmark, uh, like the, the southern part of Sweden from Denmark. Uh, like the, there was uh, ice, so like Denmark is an archipelago, uh, or like they have their main population centers is on the uh, big island, uh, and that's kind of like defended because they always had like a stronger navy than Sweden had. But when uh, the uh, sea froze over, you could simply march over from uh, the Swedish army was in Germany at the time, so they walked basically uh, over. Uh, the Straits uh, to Copenhagen and uh, I read somewhere that the king said if God wills it and the ice holds uh, and well uh, the ice held 
Uh, not sure well, if Bond will it, but yeah. yeah. So. Well, uh, you know, I would, I would personally argue that the golden age of Sweden is the era that we're going to be talking about. Yes. Uh, and that's my segue into uh, Olaf Palme. Yeah. Uh, a hero I, uh, killed yeah. by both the king, the mob, the KGB, the CIA, and, um, yeah. and just I, some random guy as well. Uh, I can shortly say that uh, the imperial age of Sweden was like good for the nobility and kings, but it wasn't that fun for uh, the regular Swedish person because... Uh, Sweden was at war basically constantly, so you had you got drafted and you uh, sent, were sent off to die in Russia. Then you were, were drafted, your sons were drafted, and they were to uh, die in uh, like Denmark or Norway or some place like that. So uh, not very many fond memories uh, for most people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so you could say like after that, after Sweden had lost all the wars, and we had lost Finland, and then we had like lost Norway. Then we decided that neutrality was the way to go. <laughs> um, so at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, I think it was in 30, 1932, uh, the Social Democrats uh, come to power in Sweden. And then they just keep winning elections for uh, 40 years after that. Uh, so you have like an uninterrupt, uninterrupted social democratic monopoly on power for something like 40 years. And uh, at the end of that period, Olof Palme uh, takes the lead of the Social Democratic Party. Um, and he's, uh, he comes from uh, some kind of upper, upper, he has an upper class background. He's very like uh, eloquent, uh, but he uh, becomes a convinced uh, Social Democrat, uh, partly because of what he sees, like first of all, I think he goes to school in uh, to college in the United States, and then he's posted in like Indochina, and in America he sees like uh, racism and uh, like uh, income disparity, so to speak, and in uh, Indochina he basically sees uh, colonialism, and these are three things that he decides that he is very much against. You know what I I had actually never seen a picture of Olaf Palme until earlier today when I was doing some research. I've read about him before. Yeah. I'm familiar with the guy. And I've heard you talk about him. But the first thing I saw when I looked at him was that Ayn Rand looks a lot like him. Uh, it's like it's like hmm? very close. Like later Ayn Rand, Olaf Palme. Olaf yeah. Palme doesn't look like Ayn Rand, but Ayn Rand looks like Olaf Palme. I see what you mean. Uh, there's also like the early and the uh, slightly later Olaf Palme because. Uh, I think that after Kennedy was elected, he uh, changed some things about his appearances. He uh, like he fixed his, he got his teeth fixed, for example. Uh, like originally, I think his teeth uh, looked a lot more like they had just been thrown into his mouth by an angry god. Uh, but uh, you know, some women prefer that. That's what I get. I hear that a lot. Yeah, but in the age of uh, the Kennedys, he he decided uh, to get them fixed. Uh, but uh, between good for uh, him, and then and then the Kennedys are going to come and make fun of him. Yeah, <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> exactly. Come on, let a guy get a, get some nice teeth for once. <laughs> Wait, what happened there? The Kennedy, uh, <laughs> Kennedy mean girling Palme. Well, they didn't really overlap because uh, at that time he was, uh, I think he was Minister of Education or something. 
but uh, when the uh, the pr- a premier minister of that day who sat between, I think it was 46 and 68 uh, resigns, then Palme takes over. Mm-hmm. So like the guy before him uh, was prime minister for 22 years. Why did he uh, resign? Probably because he uh, started feeling old. Uh, oh. And so like he had been a prime minister for a very long time. Um, so, uh, and like uh, Olaf Palme was like the, the up and coming popular kid. So uh, I think like it's better to quit while you're ahead. Uh, and like if you won like uh, five elections in a row, uh, you don't want to be the guy who like stayed a term before and uh, lost the election. But uh, I don't think any other person has ever thought that other than that guy, but that's probably the right move. Well, you know, shout out uh, Diane. Well, uh, this now comes the interesting part. Like, Palme takes over, and I think he wins the first election, and maybe the second, but then he loses. So, really? after more than 40 years of uninterrupted monopoly on power, uh, like the uh, non socialist parties uh, come back into power. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one of the things where you can see that this is a different era. Like he's the guy who lost the election, and uh, he gets to basically stay being the prime, no, not the prime minister, like the leader of the party, and he leads the party through the next election, and they lose that as well. But then, uh, at the third election, uh, he's still uh, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, and then he wins. Like today, after having lost two elections, you wouldn't. Like you wouldn't get a third try, yeah. but uh, yeah, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn is gone. Uh, exactly. Yeah, they killed him. It was insane. They shot him in the street in 1986. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, I mean that's really surprising that they kept that they kept running him. Was he incre- He was just incredibly popular within the Social Democratic Party. Yeah, like he was kind of popular outside of it also. Uh, like. Uh, the problem, basically, that I think social democracy had was that if you keep winning elections, like how how do you signify like a forward momentum? Like you kind of have to pretend to be in opposition to yourself because how else are you going to like say, oh, we're going to fix all these societal problems? Oh, the societal problems that have formed during the past 40 years when you have had an uninterrupted monopoly on power. Well, <laughs> nice that you're getting around to fixing those. Um, so, uh, what were the what were the kind of like uh, like what were the major issues for Swedish people at the time? Uh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, well, it's. Uh, I must say I'm not entirely certain, but like one thing that was big then was uh, shortly before they lost the election, they launched an initiative called the uh, the Meidner Plan or like the uh, uh, the Workers Funds, which was a, a an idea of stock buybacks where a part of uh, workers' salaries would go into buying stocks in the companies where they worked. As, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we're the Social Democratic Party. We're going to pass a law where you give your boss some money. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the, the stocks oh. would then go and be controlled by the unions. Uh, so uh, 
Okay, so they kind of like it's kind of like the union is buying into the company a little bit. Like it's going to be kind of, I I guess I I, should be charitable, but the idea is to be like to form more cooperative uh, kind of companies. Well, the the idea was one step further. Uh, The the idea was basically that this is how you do like uh, uh, socialism. Like uh, the unions buy up the companies, and that's how you get. Uh, companies under social control um, or at least that's what uh, what the companies heard so they uh, they went uh, apeshit like uh, up until that time the Swedish like uh, employers organization had uh, it had been like a chamber of commerce thing uh, but now it went through uh, it went full like Koch brothers trying to f- like fund uh, think tanks and stuff like that to uh, prevent things like this. Mm-hmm. So uh, you guys don't have like sectorial bargaining with workers on the boards and stuff right now? Like I, I think uh, Germany we, and Denmark have that? We do have that. Okay. We do have that. But this was something different. And like this was an initiative. And this, this galvanized uh, the right. Uh, so this became like a huge issue. And... Uh, other things was that uh, like Sweden was going very well up until that uh, point, but then you had the oil shocks and uh, inflation started taking off. And inflation was kind of a problem from the 70s up until the early 90s. Uh, we had like we had something like uh, five to ten percent uh, inflation all of the time. Um, especially between the 80s and uh, the 90s. Uh, so, I mean, those were the things. But the, the other thing is that it was, it, I think it became harder and harder for the social democrats to present like a vision of the future. Like, uh, how, what's the next step? Uh, like, where do we go from here? No, uh, yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah, and I can yeah. imagine like just being in power for so long. Yeah. You're just running. I mean, you're kind of just like pulling the levers at that point. Like, I can't imagine it's hard to hard for yourself to even imagine something better uh, if you're a social democratic politician. Uh, yeah. If you just become kind of a bureaucrat. Yeah. And also, like Sweden was an incredibly bureaucratic uh, society. Uh, so, like some of the complaints uh, about uh, like rigid bureaucracy and stuff like that weren't uh, taken from thin air, uh, but. Uh, they lost like two elections in a row and uh, but, but the social democrats were still like the biggest party by far uh, so it, it wasn't like that it wasn't like a the swedish system is very much like a multi-party system so the uh, conservative or like liberal non-socialist governments were very weak and they collapsed uh, every now and then because for example the issue of nuclear power uh, split them because the uh, agrarian party was very much anti-nuclear and the other part these were pro-nuclears and Sweden had a nuclear referendum and that shattered their coalition so you got the number of minority governments because uh, a weird thing with the Swedish government is that you don't have to have a majority voting for uh, you, you just uh, don't have to have a majority voting against you so I think like the weakest government we got was like a, they were representing something like ten percent of the electorate, uh, because uh, like the, the social democrats they 
they abstained during that round of voting. So like a small liberal party got to rule instead of like the big conservative or the agrarian party. Uh, there was um, I read a bit about the agrarian party. Wasn't there just one guy? They just had like one old guy that was like the head of the party that all the agrarian party guys loved. I think that like they they had a number of old guys, <laughs> but uh, I they, might be thinking uh, of a different Nordic country. But, yeah, yeah, I, no. I think you might because they it's like like at times they were like the biggest opposition party. They had something. I think they when they had the most had something like twenty five percent of the votes. Uh, so they weren't. Uh, it it wasn't fully agrarian. It was more like a countryside party. Uh, and the thing is that the, the biggest opposition party kind of like draws the opposition power so even if their profile is that we care about the concrete side if like if, if it is i don't like the those damn socialists then well when that well then you're going to go there so after after ha- having lost uh, two elections and uh, people had got a feel for what uh, liberal uh, uh, freedom uh, feels like they decided that well Maybe we'll uh, go and get back to good old social democracy. That's so important. You know, I feel like that's where the Soviet Union failed. They, they should have, like, set up, like, an oblast just for the liberals just to see what happened. Just show people, like, like, a, like a human zoo sort of deal where you could show the liberals in power for a sec just to show people, like... Oh. All right, guys, we did it. All right, we're back. Uh, MIT just busted through my door, asked for some papers. Everything worked out all right. They said I wasn't actually doing anything wrong. They just wanted to make sure everything was all right. So we're back. All right. All right. And now we are back to the uh, Swedish Social Democratic Party, losing two elections, coming back into power uh, with the people now disillusioned with the dreams of liberal freedom, blue jeans, um, and the IDF. Uh, and Olaf Palme is on the scene. Exactly. Uh, so he's won the election, and uh, he has some. There's a kind of a small crisis just uh, at at the start because uh, Sweden uh, at at like the shift uh, we have like uh, the big uh, one of the big U-boat incidents. So, oh yes, uh, because uh, Sweden has had uh, a number of. Um, there's been an ongoing saga from the. Uh, early 80s or maybe the late 90s up to that time about suspected uh, submarine incursions uh, by the Soviet Union and uh, one very confirmed submarine incursion um, because in 1981 a submarine ran aground uh, outside the coast of uh, Sweden or like right at the coast uh, and this this was a huge deal uh, here. Uh, it's still is. Y- yeah, it's uh, yeah. the U-boat. It has many different uh, designations, but I think we call it uh, U-137. Uh, it was a whiskey class, and it uh, it, it ran aground on the twenty seventh of October uh, in nineteen eighty one. So that was during the. Uh, uh it was the uh the time when the 
Oh, oh, this was when the agrarian party was holding the. Uh, um, uh, oh God, power. they would hate that yeah. a technological submarine yeah. coming up to the agrarian party. Uh, oh my God! And uh, the, the, one of the things that made it kind of a big deal, except for the fact that it ran aground like very far into Swedish waters, like right off the coast, was that uh, you could you could quickly infer that it actually had nuclear. Uh, it wasn't nuclear power, but it had nuclear weapons on board. And it's been a long-running discussion since then whether it had misnavigated uh, and like gonna come up against the coast, or if it was there on a secret mission and run aground. And that uh, it's kind of like an article of faith that you, at one point in your life, you decide which one of these stories you believe in, and then you stick to it. But I think everyone is kind of like agreeing that the uh, a lot of people on that boat uh, must have been drinking because it, they they really managed to go up on a uh, in a little island. So it was uh, it was. That's wild. Yeah, you've told yeah. me that you know every Swedish uh, adult over forty has seen a Russian submarine. And yeah, some of them almost caught it. <clears throat> yeah, something like it. Uh, because since then, like, there's been a lot, uh, lot of submarine observations, and uh, it's been one of these long-running bugbears of the Swedish Navy that they want to actually catch a Russian submarine or like Soviet submarine in the act. This and is it, like literally like a fallout. Fallout style cryptid. Like this happens in like Fallout yeah. Four. Like no, no, like, this oh, is a monster a, out there. This you is know, classic. Uh, this is classic traditional, you know, Hemingway Hemingway style masculinity, going out uh, to go hunt for submarines. I mean, that's literally like uh, you know Hemingway. That's what Hemingway did down in Cuba. Uh, <laughs> I think it's replaced elves a lot in the Swedish imagination. It's the uh, yeah. it's it's about be, it's about be, what what being a man is about. Okay. Having yeah, I'd love to harpoon okay. a submarine. Uh, finding submarines. Use its uh, nuclear fuel to power my lanterns. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Olaf Palme, how does he yeah. react? Or how does the Swedish uh, Social Democratic Party react to the well, uh, incursion? They, they're, they're as uh, like negative as everyone else. And this is one of the mm. things that uh, I haven't really gone into the person of Olaf Palme, but uh, as I said, he was very much uh, against economical inequality. He was against racism and he was against colonialism. But he was also, this is one thing about basic Swedish social democrats, that they are deadly afraid of the Soviets. Uh, so I, you could almost say that they're more afraid of them basically being Russians than being communists. Oh. Uh, so there's uh, like Sweden wasn't like so uh, Olaf Palme was on very good terms with like uh, Phil Castro and Yasser Arafat and the ANC and uh, actually, yeah he funded the PLO uh, I didn't know that yeah and, and they uh, like he had a like trip to Cuba uh, where he posed with Castro and it was like one picture when he stood basically posing with a gun where he I think he regretted that that was one step too far. But I don't. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. That's why I love him. Do you uh, can you do you know like where the the fear of Russians as Russians come from? Is that like a like, like historical a like geopolitical rivalry? Like I know you mentioned like 
again, this is uh, obviously outside yeah. of kind of living memory, but you mentioned that there was some rivalry between Sweden and Russia, and I can imagine just regionally that makes, yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because like first in like uh, late uh, early 18s, like uh, Sweden loses the uh, the Baltic part uh, of the eastern half of the country, so we we lose like Estonia and. Uh, we also during the Great Nordic War, uh, Peter the Great uh, basically first he loses the first battles, but then he wins at Poltava, and Sweden lost a lot of territory in the east, including what he then makes into Saint Petersburg. Uh, and then later uh, during a series of war, which end during like the last war is during the Napoleonic Wars. I think it's Catherine the Great or not entirely certain, but then it's her, the person after, but uh, Sweden loses Finland to Russia. So all of a sudden, Russia is very, very close to Sweden. And like from the Baltics being basically a Swedish sea where we own almost all of the coast, uh, it's basically a launching ground for uh, Russia to basically invade Sweden if the day would come. Mm. And also, I can imagine, like, uh, you know, after World War II and the, whatever the Winter War in Finland, also, I mean, it just, <laughs> that that does, I mean, it makes sense uh, yeah. on that level. Uh, yeah, and also, I don't think that you have to go into like deep uh, history. It's just uh -huh. where, like, where would the tanks be coming from? I mean, mm -hmm. there's, it's uh, no one else who could be interested in the territory, so to speak, and uh, the, so. <clears throat> Well, I mean, we, you know, we're we're both Americans, so the tanks can't be coming from anywhere, and you, yeah, we're afraid of everyone. So, yeah, <laughs> I promise you don't need you don't need a credible threat, but yeah, I can I can see how you actually had a credible threat uh, uh, in Russia, even if you know the politics maybe didn't make sense uh, at the time uh, for a Swedish invasion. I don't know. What, um, yeah. So, what what was the Swedish social democratic relation with um with the the Soviet Union? I mean, it it was. Uh... It, it varies is the short answer like mm -hmm. right after the second world war sweden tries to first do true neutrality uh, and be like try to be a friend of both the east and the west uh, but that for various reasons that uh, they change footing and then they start slowly like sliding to to the west first uh, and like for example i think uh hungary 56 and uh also like other more like local stuff affect that and, and also like but Sweden is kind of like in this weird position because uh, Finland is Sweden and Finland are kind of neutral at that at this point but Finland is you could say Soviet friendly neutral uh, they don't really have much choice because that's part of the post World War II settlement so this, this expression to become Finlandized and that's basically to become a kind of a satellite uh oh wow but, you know that's good we should start mm. using swedlandized to, mm. for uh for uh semi-neutral yeah. but western leaning yeah so uh and we we still have kind of almost open borders with finland so mm -hmm. to, to some extent like it it's not like the iron curtain isn't really in play so we do deals with the soviets and we do, do deals with the west but mm -hmm. i mean our heart isn't in the deals with uh, the Soviet Union. 
and at times like some people think that we should try to do some kind of detente or and then we backtrack and it, it, it's complicated but it's a cold uh, <laughs> Sweden tries to actually do true neutrality and true mm-hmm. neutrality must be done through strength so that's when we kind of like make our own tanks we make our own submarines and our own fighter jets and, and almost actually, your own nuclear bomb exactly uh, we have a quite foregone nuclear program that then becomes scrapped after some kind of under the table deal with the United States and uh, this is one of those deals that we kind of there's not really that much official said about it but you can kind of see that a deal was made because uh, at the same time that we stopped trying to make our own nukes uh, Sweden did some changes to our airfields uh, which like had could have only one purpose and that is to enable American bombers to like land Mm-hmm. So they weren't going to take off from there to bomb the Soviet Union, but uh, they could land there having bombed the Soviet Union. It was basically the deal. Um, one, th- one thing that you told me that had a pretty big impact on me, this was a few months ago, I don't know if you remember it, but you were saying that, uh, I mentioned that, you know, I, I read that Sweden was six months away from getting a nuclear weapon, and you told me that six months is about how long it takes to uh, create the... Uh, uh, nuclear material necessary for the nuclear weapon, and, and now whenever I you know read a news story about potential uh, nuclear armament, about I see six months and I'm like, of course it's, it's never three months, you know. Well, I, I I'm I'm not certain that was what I meant. I I think that uh, well, uh, I think we had reactors to, to do that, and that's one of the if you want to have a nuclear bomb then. Uh, there, are, there are certain things that you have to have. You have to have the fissile materials, you have to have the mechanism to do the bomb, and most countries will not be allowed to get the fissile material. But Sweden had a nuclear industry. We have lots of nuclear power plants, and we had a reactor of the kind that Saddam Hussein was building at uh, the Osirak site, uh, and that one had been running for like uh, decades. Uh, so uh, I, I think that uh, we, we might have been like six months away from it, but that's kind of depending on if we had all the other stuff. And that is kind of shrouded in darkness because uh, the, the people who were working on this, I think they quit doing it like somewhere in the 60s. So now it's kind of like Fisher Tales, what they did. And uh, so, uh, and I. I don't think that anyone who had like the the complete picture uh, has ever said anything on record. So like, it's very possible that uh, like some guys can say that we were six months away from it. But I mean, it was probably someone who said that my part was six months away. So, uh, and the other part is that uh, I think that we might have been very close to getting it, but then we realized that it's a, as a small country getting nuclear weapons is a bit like a dog chasing a car. What are you going, going to do with it when you catch it? Because if we did that, then we would be barred from like trading in uranium and lots of other things we will not be able to be able to do. Because uh, you, you don't like the United States don't want every like th- they have to suffer the UK and France having nuclear weapons, but 
they don't want like every tiny little country in the world having them because then then World War Three can get can start over like fishing rights in the Northern Sea or stupid stuff like that. I'm willing don't to you know, risk it all for fishing rights in the North Sea. Those are very important to me. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, that that was kind of like the story of Sweden's uh, neutrality. Like mm-hmm. at first we tried to do it for real, but then as time went on, we kind of decided that we want parts of neutrality, but we want neutrality up until the time when World War Three starts. Yeah, and then we very much want to be on the American team. Yeah. If that's not <laughs> uh, the story of the non-aligned yeah. movement, I don't know what is. You know. Yeah, but that's, uh, I mean, it's like neutrality wasn't a total sham. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Sweden very much w- wouldn't go along with uh, like supporting the war in Vietnam, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sweden was very cr- critical of it. That was one of the things that Olaf Palme did. But at the same time that he did, like had very like harsh statements about the United States involvement in Vietnam out, he also made sure that... Uh, through back channels to signal that this changes nothing in Europe. Yeah. Like uh, we are, we are, we say that you are in the wrong over there, but over here, we we're good. <laughs> we're all good. <laughs> um. So, and this is like the the paradox, and this kind of makes some people over say sell Palmer as this uh, hero of the third world and this like crypto com- uh, communist but I mean he wasn't a Swedish Salvador Allende mm-hmm. uh, he uh, I mean he, he was a uh, I, I sometimes say that he was a based social democrat yeah. like he said like <laughs> yeah. the cool things he was a good rhetorician uh, like he was a great public speaker and if he had like a good line or a good metaphor he knew when to quit he said the like um great line and then he didn't got like get like intoxicated by uh, the positive feedback and then try to like con- continue and <laughs> you can see that a lot of people like who could have been good recreations don't know when to stop mm-hmm. he delivers the quip and then he walks away yeah he didn't get embroiled in vietnam after he marched with the north vietnamese he didn't start sending weapons and then swedish advisors and then you know no planes. no <laughs> Exactly, uh, but uh, I mean the uh, like the involvement was actually also very real, uh, and uh, when right before he was shot, like the week before, uh, he participated in the like the People's Parliament against apartheid, which was a uh, like a, ser- a series of events in Sweden when we had uh, people from the ANC here and uh, people from all around the world, like basically discussing the issues of uh, like South Africa and apartheid. Um, so I think, uh, uh, I think one of the issues when when social democrats or or left leaning people kind of do this, you know, kind of say the cool thing and then you know work really, uh, I don't want to say pragmatically, but yeah, kind of more pragmatically within uh, the global system. Uh, I think what they kind of miss out is a, a lot of the crazy right wingers. They hear you say, uh, you know, support for, you know, the North Vietnamese or something. And that might as well be, you might as well be funding them 100%, giving them nukes. Like, that is 100% equivalent. Uh, even posing for, for example, uh, 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 famously uh, Jane, uh, oh shoot, what's her name? Uh, yeah, Jane Fonda. Yeah, Jane Fonda, like, just posing for a picture. Like, this has tarred her now. She still gets death threats to this day <laughs> about yeah. this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, 
it's mm. it's hard it's a hard line to walk if you're trying to be that whatever pragmatic politician yeah. on that level to your own constituency but yeah. on the other side like even just motioning in that direction is enough for for the crazy right to really brand you as you might as well be a uh, fidel castro or uh, yeah or, yeah <clears throat> and that's exactly what happened because there's this uh, like sea of synchronicity of things were, that were happening right when Palmer was killed uh, like uh, one I think one month after he was shot he was supposed to have actually gone to Moscow um, for like I think the, the first uh, like case of a Swedish premier minister visiting the Soviet Union ever um, See, you can only do that sort of thing if you're like a Trump type figure and, yeah. <laughs> and accidentally do it or, or do it from the right almost. Like otherwise, you I mean, yeah, you might as well. Be, you're, you're a Soviet agent, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if I'm just going to go back to the thing I said about the subs, like Sweden had had uh, suspected sub incursions earlier. But this uh, like during like the last days of the like after the conservative liberal and agrarian parties had lost the election and Palm was coming back to power. During like the lame duck period, uh, uh, they did a uh, like an exercise with uh, uh, NATO boats in Stockholm, which was an attempt at uh, like luring in a Soviet sub. Uh, and then Sweden had like a big sub hunt when they thought that three different subs were actually uh, circling Stockholm at the same time, like one big mother sub and one mini sub and one like sub on uh, tracks running along uh, on the bottom. Um, and I think that these observations were kind of figments of the imagination. Uh, like there are like three different ways of interpreting the story. One is that it was actually an American sub uh, pretending to be a Soviet sub. Uh, one is that it was a Soviet sub and then First, they saw like a like thought that they could detect like a big Soviet sub, like a nuclear sub, and then when they saw like other observations of a small sub, and they found what they thought were track marks on the bottom, then they concluded that oh, then they must be like mini subs sent out from the big sub, and that later became an idea that it is now proven that Soviet doctrine is that they always work in pairs and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and this makes me think that uh, the truth is actually a third option. And this is that you manage to um, like uh, imagine basically you have kind of mass hysteria because uh, when people start talking about it and you get a sub fever, then everyone, like every shadow that you see, uh, like when the sun is really low and shining and you see this object, it must be the tower of a submarine. Um, yeah, and when uh, you know your friend tells you he uh, thinks he saw one, suddenly you're telling yeah. someone else, my friend saw one. So it... <laughs> exactly, and it's very often like people have like been up drinking and talking about the sub threat, and then going home they see something and they think it's a sub. Uh, so, and you also had these weird reports of like people seeing like frogman going up on the like shores. Oh my god, that's then, Bigfoot! The... That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, like assuming that the frogman must be a Soviet frogman, completely ignoring the fact that there are 10,000 uh, people in Sweden with a diving certificate. So, uh, oh my God. so I, that's you kind of like get these uh, like 
what I suspect is a mass hysteria. But it's very possible that some of these were true observations, mm. but you can see that the vast majority of it wasn't. So like Sweden was kind of in a, like the Soviet Union, like before the, these sub things, uh, the Soviet Union was actually a lot more popular in Sweden than it was like just a few years later. Mm-hmm. And well, the Soviet Union was never popular in Sweden. I mean, mm-hmm. we have Russia brain, but I mean, um, uh, people like you had like a massive uh, negativity towards entering NATO in Sweden. Uh, it was it was something like 80% against 10% for mm-hmm. for a very long time. But then the, the, the sub incursions or suspected submarine incursions like slowly started to revert that trend to mm-hmm. something more like 50 against 40 uh, or 30. Wow, that's pretty like significant. That. Yeah, but I mean, this was over like a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I remember from my childhood, you still had like these sub hunts. Uh, but this is one of those cases where you think that, well, now when everyone has a uh, mobile phone, Surely we should have lots of photos of these submarines, but for some reason they don't seem to uh, show think, up. You would when you think have the like a, the whole point of the sub is that it's hidden and that it, yeah. that it can't be easily found by by whatever radar or, or mm-hmm. uh, other ships or or by sight. You would think it'd be harder to spot them that there wouldn't be so many sightings. Like even if there were mm-hmm. subs prowling around, like. <laughs> Yeah, but but the thing is that they have, of course, sonar and stuff like that. And that's the other problem that a lot of these sounds uh, caught by the sonar has later been found to be other things. Like um, uh, like uh, American minks, for example. Uh, when they swim, they make a sound that's eerily like a propeller, uh, like a very silent propeller. Uh, another issue is... Uh, I think it was herring uh, really? that does a kind of like fart where they exchange uh, air t- to be able to go up or down. Mm. And if an uh, entire school of herrings do this at the same time, uh, you get a <clears throat> sound. And the thing is that you had, uh, like when deciding how certain a submarine observation was, you had uh, like these different things could corroborate each other. So, like, if you have someone who says they have heard a, uh, like, seen a submarine, and then you have a reading of something that you think is a submarine, then it's a like confirmed sighting. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but the problem is that if then, like, you have these other things, then just people seeing a shadow becomes confirmed by the mink and. It, a lot of the time you have is that you, you subtract all the things that you later realize were bogus, but you don't, like, as long as you then have, like, one indication, like the serpent mort sticks. Yeah. <clears throat> Imagine, like, uh, you know, the media the media is reporting on some of this, right? So as soon as someone hears, but even if someone hears on the news, like, it's unconfirmed or, you know, we're mm-hmm. not certain about it, as soon as they hear sub may have been seen or something, I mean, that's basically a confirmation for a regular person. Like, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of these, um, a, a lot of these uh, sightings, especially in later years, have later been confirmed to be something else. And the media has really taken a pole position on that. And the, there have been cases where even like the Swedish Navy 
who are they are not like they are not Dana Scully in this X Files investigation when it comes to the subs. They are very much a fox Mulder. Like even when they have said that, oh, we we have now confirmed that this was something else. There have been instances when the press had said that we still believe that uh, it was a true observation. Then liberal media. Um, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but uh, this was kind of like how Palmas' new period like started out. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a more paranoid era, and he didn't have the same like he was more uniformly popular last time around when he was prime minister because then he came from like a society that wasn't as polarized because as a society when one party has had monopoly on power for forty. Uh, 44 years or something can't really be polarized because everyone who has uh, like any kind of official position has gotten that position through the party. Um, but uh, this time around, like Sweden is more polarized and there's been some very vocal anti-Palmer co- campaigns. Uh, some of them coming from this uh, this uh, em- em- employee fund, fund, the movement uh, that was against that. And the other part is that actually the Swedish lin, uh, uh, branch of the Lyndon LaRouche uh, movement huh, what? had some, yeah, they had some pretty nasty anti-Palme uh, propaganda, um, especially where they kind of emphasized uh, his, uh, how, how should I uh, put this delicately, uh, the size of his nose. Um, so uh, they... Uh, they kind of they did pretty virulent anti-Palme uh, things. So after the uh, murder of Olof Palme, uh, the this, the leader of the Swedish the, uh, the leader of the Swedish Lyndon LaRouche movement uh, moved uh, to back to America because he was afraid of getting indicted. Uh, and that guy, I think, later rebranded himself as an expert on Russia. But uh, that's another story for another day. So this, so they was they were anti-Semitic towards him, but he. I no, mean, I well, guess. no, he he's not Jewish, but uh, they no, asked, yeah, I know, uh, but like, but they kind of like insinuated. Yes, related, uh, like some maybe. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is kind of I don't know how common this is in in Sweden, but in the U.S. Yeah. it's basically you know those social democrats are I might as well be Jewish, uh, for most Americans. Like it is very, it is still very mm-hmm. tied uh, to that mm-hmm. uh, you know Judeo Bolshevism. Yeah. Uh, uh, thing I mean, even even more since the you know post uh, George Floyd stuff. Uh, yeah, they they were tapping into that vein. Uh, I would definitely say. Um, so I mean, there was as I said, there was a lot more polarization and stuff like that. But but the th- here is the thing, and uh, like if I'm going to have the really short uh, like lowdown on this uh, murder of Olaf Palme. It's like you get into this era where you just have so very many people who you get the feeling they could have killed him. Uh, and um, uh, and that's one of the problems that the investigation later becomes so large. I think it's something like 900,000 pages. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like reading 900 Lord of the Rings. So uh, it's very easy to get... Uh, like, like get like a, find a thread and start pulling on it, and 
you can create your own universe where you can say that everything points towards like this this individual or this thing. That's exactly what I hope to do today. Yeah. I have some ideas. Uh, so uh, if we should skip up a bit and simply go to the murder. Sure. Um, it's 1986. Stockholm. It's 1986. Uh, and this is... Uh, I, yeah, I think this is the... Uh, the election is going to be this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he... Uh, it's, uh, it's winter, uh, 28th of February. Uh, Olaf Palme and his wife, uh, they decide to, they, they, they're talking to his, uh, Olaf Palme's son, like their son, and they decide that uh, they're, uh, they're going to go to the movies. This isn't, isn't something that's pre-planned. They decide it like that day, and they uh, decide that they're going to see a, a Swedish comedy called The Moser Brothers. Uh, I like to point out that uh, the other three films that they could have seen that evening was Run by Akira Kurosawa. Really? They could have seen uh, Mozart, and they could have seen uh, the Soviet film Come and See. So I don't think oh my God. there actually has been in the history of cinema a stronger showing on any <laughs> given evening. But he went with the now completely forgotten Swedish comedy, The Mozart Brothers. <laughs> the people. Um, it's a, that's so, amazing. That's an amazing lineup. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I think uh, like uh, his son had already said a scene, uh, Mozart, and I mean, come and see and run is isn't. I mean, it's not like you want to relax after a uh, like a a week of running Sweden. Yeah. I mean, uh, so both of those movies too are also what pushing three hours. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so they go and see that film, uh, and uh, uh, before he goes out, he he phones and he talks with an old member of like the Swedish Social Democratic Party, who I might add also used to be the uh, Swedish like the liaison between the Social Democrats and uh, like stay behind. Oh, uh, which is one of those things that uh, who knows uh, it might be significant, but um, or as I said, like. It might not be, but it was just like one of those little things. Um, so Stay Behind might have had uh, foreknowledge. Who knows? Or not. Um, so they go to the cinema. Uh, they uh, see the film. And then after the film, they stay They stay a bit after. Because uh, uh, Olaf Palme, uh, he likes talking to like uh, the common man. But... His wife doesn't super love it when people on the street come up and uh, start discussing with Olaf Palme. <laughs> uh, Olaf Palme doesn't have any uh, bodyguards with him because he uses uh, bodyguards like when he's on official business. But in his spare time, he, he doesn't use them because, as I said, he's very much a based uh, guy. Like he, he rules the country, but if the common man wants to come up to him and like ask why are you doing this and that. He very much likes to be able to just answer them. He's always ripping his like, shirt uh, open to show that he's not wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not that far, but like he he likes to be approachable and to kind of like be accountable. Uh, so they stay a while and then uh, they kind of just they have discussed like should we go back to 
should we have like a cup of tea together or they decide to split up. So the son and his girlfriend, they go one way and Ulf Palme and his wife, they go the other way. And uh, having gone something like half a kilometer, uh, a guy walks up to them from either from the side or from behind and puts his hand on Olaf Palme's shoulder, maybe says a few words, we don't know, and then uh, shoots first Olaf Palme and then uh, fires off a shot that just graces his wife, Lisbeth. He looks uh, like down at them like for a second or two and then he takes off and starts running. Uh, immediately after the shot, like two or three people rush forward to give first aid to Olaf Palme. Uh, and that's one of those cases where you can see that in general, like p- people are good, people want to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a guy who kind of like looks and hesitates, but after a while decides to take a pursuit. The police are at the site within three minutes. Uh, two minutes later, uh, an ambulance is there. So things has gone as good as they could mm-hmm. basically in yeah, that situation that's an incredibly fast response from the police yeah. they, they were clo- they must have been close by a police station or something right they were close by and also there was a cab driver at the site and mm. he he called into the taxi central and they alerted the police okay and they, they, this is like central stockholm so uh, within a one kilometer radius there was something like 30 policemen oh well um and uh, like so far so good. I'm like, problem... holy shit! If we mm. we wish we could get a three minute response to gunshots here. So he was shot in the shoulder. Holy shit! Uh, he he was shot like straight through his heart and spine oh, from yeah. behind. Oh yeah, you don't want that. So the thing is that he was dead before he hit the pavement, oh, basically. Man. And uh, Lisbeth was just grazed, uh, and but. I think someone like it's not entirely certain because her wounds were never properly examined but odds are that if the gunman had had just like a one or two degree different angle that the gun had uh, the bullet would basically have done the same to her as it did to him there's also some uncertainty whether like the second shot was actually aimed at her because Mm -hmm. uh, if if you try to fire off two shots and uh, you kind of committed to the movement. It's sometimes called the delay effect. So if you didn't expect Palme to completely just collapse uh, after the first and you shoot at the place where he was supposed to be if he hadn't collapsed, that can have been what happened. So some people make a lot of uh, Lisbeth only being grazed. And I might add that there are lots of stupid theories uh, which has like... uh, like you know, in what, uh, think midsummer, exactly what? like midsummer murder, it's always the person who just got injured but not killed who's actually the killer. That's very dull. But I mean, that's that, very dull. Exactly, theory. it's extremely stupid, and also like <laughs> no one's that good with a gun, so they that they can shoot off something that just graces your spine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just like no, 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 no. <laughs> And like, was the this way of shooting him? Was it very professional because it was, like, it was like a pure kill? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, if it had been like slightly to 
slightly off in some directions, it would just have gone through him and hadn't made any damage. So mm-hmm. th- this is one of those, uh, like some people say that this do shows people, the guy. Do people Sorry. shoot a lot of guns? Is that common to do a lot of shooting in Sweden? Yeah, the submarines. Yes. It yes. is? Okay. Like, okay. Uh, so people like, are aware that like how inaccurate pistols can be and how how difficult it can be to hit something like right in front of you, right? Yeah, but like if you have it basically touching his back, I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, it, but 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 the Lisbeth shot wasn't uh, that short well, distance. I'll say I've uh, missed uh, I've missed some cans almost at that distance. I've never missed anything. Yeah. I'm a crack shot. Oh hey, I didn't see you there. Oh, so that's the end of this week's episode. I can't believe they fucking shot Olaf, dude. What the fuck? Either way. Uh, we didn't have enough money to shove the uh, episode through the internet pipes uh, the whole shot this week. So the next episode is going to come out next week. We're going to finish up the assassination. I'm sure you have some theories by now. I'm probably wrong. I got the right one. I'll see you guys next week. Free Palestine. Fuck the police. That's a wrap.